My name is August McLaughlin, and I've been contemplating girl boners for years. It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin, a spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting, and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex. Only on Global Voice Broadcasting. Imagine being raised as a girl only to realize in your early 20s that you weren't only another gender, but a gender you hadn't realized had a name until then. That is exactly the experience of today's guest, Hida Valoria, a Latinx writer, activist, and author of the incredible memoir, Born Both. Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, everyone. I'm your host, August McLaughlin, and I'm so thrilled you're listening. The interview I'm going to share shortly is one of my favorites because of the topic and the phenomenal guest. You're going to learn so much from Hida. Remember to hop over to augustmclaughlin.com, M-C-L-A-U-G-H-L-I-N, augustmclaughlin.com for more Girl Boner fun, and to sign up for occasional email updates. On my blog, you'll find photos of folks I've interviewed, links to their awesome stuff, stuff, reviews, and links to spicy products, articles I've written, and more. And if you haven't yet, please subscribe on iTunes and consider leaving a simple review while you're there. It really helps keep things going here. Today's episode is brought to us in part by The Pleasure Chest, an inclusive all-things sex store where you can buy amazing toys, including the Iroha Yoru by Tenga, which, yes, you guessed it, is our latest toy of the month. It's a lusciously soft, vibrating toy, kind of shaped like a whale, you can use for orgasmic TLC. I find it intense or less intense and less kind of skyrockety than other vibrators, which is really nice in my opinion. You can relax and explore and take your time. Today's interview is a long one, but in my opinion, worth every minute. I'm just not of the belief that shows should all be the same length. I think, you know, it should be as long as it needs to be. And in this case, I really think you're going to enjoy all the bits and pieces. Definitely stick around to the end because in the last 10 minutes or so, Dr. Megan will weigh in for a listener whose husband's sex drive is really missing, like completely MIA, um, unless they agree to have sex with other people, which they tried and it put him into overdrive at home and caused some other problems. And what's a girl to do when she adores her husband but seriously needs some sex? Her girl boner is really lonely and and wanting some affection. Such an important question, and you're going to love what Dr. Megan has to say. On to the interview. So Hida Valoria was born intersex, a term used to describe people who have genitals, hormones, reproductive organs, and or chromosomal patterns that don't fit traditional definitions of male or female. So for anyone who hears that definition and isn't quite clear on how it actually plays out. Could you describe it in layman's terms? Sure. Um, I think one of the easiest ways to think about intersex people is we are on the spectrum um, between male and female in certain ways. And so you can have people who are uh, more female bodied in terms of reproductive traits, chromosomes, but a little uh, more masculine looking because they were virilized in the womb with more male hormones than most women typically are. And I fall into that category. So, you know, I've always had kind of broad shoulders and uh, musculature and, um, and also, so physical differences um, 
in genitals. I fall into that category too. And then there's almost the flip side with men who have low testosterone um, because of certain differences, one variation, XXY, and they have little body hair, which is, you know, a body hair is a result of testosterone, of different male hormones, what we call male hormones. So androgens. So there's that end, right? Um, and then also you might have male people who are mostly physically male, but with a smaller than average penis. Um, and then there's also another type, which doesn't really fall into the, the spectrum, you know, way of looking at it as easily where, People who grow up to be women, and in almost all of the cases we've seen, actually, it's called CIS. They look externally female. You know, you'd really never know except that they weren't female, except that internally they don't have typical female traits and have instead um, internal testes and XY chromosomes. So they can't get pregnant. Right. So people find out um, in the past, they just find out around that age. Usually now, oftentimes, because of different testing or it's hereditary, the family will know earlier. Um, but, yeah, so our, our differences are visible sometimes and sometimes not at all. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting. And your book is so, so powerful. And one thing I love about it is it's written in first person. So we really feel the journey and go through these experiences with you where you are meeting different people. And one thing I noticed was that you said that, you know, you knew that your body was a bit different from other girls when you were growing up, but you didn't seem to be terribly judged or criticized for it early on, you know, by yourself or for others. And as I read your book, it seemed to me that you've had largely really positive body image. You didn't seem self-conscious, for example, of having small breasts that you felt like you could just, you know, take your shirt off. And there's a, there's a beautiful confidence about you. Obviously, you know, you've had lots of struggles too with judgments, but I wonder if you felt that you had positive body image growing up and if so, kind of what helped you maintain that in a, in a culture that so many people, no matter, you know, what their genitalia or their body shape or whatever seem to really struggle with. That's a really Right and kind of difficult to answer question, August. Um, you know, one thing is I have noticed this obviously, you know, over the years. And one of my jokes has been that maybe my body image is better because I'm not a typical woman. <laughs> In other words, right? Like, yeah, I, you I know, people it. talk about right how awful it will be to be intersex, and I'm like, well, actually, most of the regular women I know have had a lot of issues around body image right? and, and I haven't. And so maybe that's partially because I'm a different kind of woman. I don't know. Yeah. But in a way though, you know, I'm, I'm joking about it, but I wonder if it could be true that having a really strong body and a sense of myself as a physically strong and athletic person basically made it easier for me to judge myself differently in a way that like typically men do more frequently. Right. So, yeah. you know, we see a lot of men and if there are jocks, they tend to have really good body image. Right. And then men who are not, um, also tend to have negative body image, you know, just like women. So I think that there's an ideal for humans in general, about, you know, and it probably comes from 
ancient Greece and a million different places and, and just from our own internal sense of well-being, physical well-being, where like a physically strong athletic body is kind of an ideal in our culture, right? And yeah. so even though it's an ideal for men more than for women, I think I just kind of took that on. I mean, I just remember feeling so happy in my body and I was really into gymnastics and literally like flying my body around through the air and doing flips and and things like that and it just felt so good and I felt so good in my body that I think maybe that was part of what made me not care Mm. about you know what I mean that I was supposed to grow breasts that didn't really grow I, I just I didn't see that as important and actually I didn't even want them and you know that's me and and maybe that has to do with my orientation but I just think that I I think that if you are able to feel really physically healthy it tends to lead to a healthy self-image um and I you know I know that a lot of women are very healthy and still don't have that so I can't really speak to that. I think, you know what I think it might be as, as I really stop to like dig in and take it in is I think more than a lot of people, I rejected a lot of beauty standards early on because I saw in my own home, the way that my father was prejudiced against people of color and, and also was very sexist in general against women. And so I really reacted very rebelliously against those two things, right? So I felt like, okay, if you're going to think that uh, women are only valuable um, based on how sexually attractive they are, well, then I'm just going to reject that entire system. Ah, you know, yeah, you know what I mean? Like, I think really early on, I was like, wow, that is a flawed system. Like, I think so many different women of different types are beautiful. And, you know, it's just about their energy and their face and and what and all of it put together. And, And I just thought that this whole sexualization of women, which unfortunately, I was really exposed to in my home in a way that maybe other girls hopefully are not. Um, I, I thought it was sick and wrong and I, I really just mm-hmm. turned away from it. And so maybe I did that with myself as well, you know, and yeah. where I, I just thought I don't have to be attractive that way. You know, I'm going to consider myself attractive and, and mm. fine. And that's just what it's going to be. I love it. I love it. I felt very inspired by it. And I also felt inspired by your, it was interesting because it was both heart wrenching and and sad and, you know, confirmed things that, that we believe about sexism, but also empowering in that when you were, I I don't want to use the word playing with gender fluidity. It was more, you, you stepped into being presenting as a male, uh, for a time or for various times throughout your life. Once you realized, uh, that you were intersex and were going through different experiences. And it was so fascinating to me because we, we imagine and we see men being treated differently than women, but you've lived it. And I wonder what, what is that like for you to be able to sort of, it's almost like, and you have strategically to even to protect your own safety at times, you know, um, tried to present more as, as female, for example, around policemen, if, if there's something, if, if you're being, 
you know, somebody's suspicious of you for some reason, or more masculine if, if there's something um, dealing with uh, sexism that females would deal with. Is that something that you feel like is um, a, a strength that, that we can all sort of learn from and, and possess? Yes, and and thank you for bringing that up. I thought that that was one of the biggest gifts that my journey could offer, is a real a, a real look at how these dynamics play out in a way that you can't um, disprove. In other words, you know, when I I was looking female throughout my life for the early part of my life. And I would say things about, you know, the fact that I thought I was getting treated differently because I was a woman. There were always people who would say no, right, who would try to discount that and say, oh, no, you, you're just imagining that or, or whatever. No, it's, it's just because people are nice and they're being nice to you or, you know, they were busy and they didn't have time to pay attention to your idea or, or whatever. You know, it's easy to discount um, when people bring up sexism, you know, it happens all the time. But if you have the same person, right, like mm -hmm. you're pointing out, being treated differently and they haven't changed anything and they're not suddenly more intelligent, but they're being treated as more intelligent, it really proves what's going on. Um, and yet the the gift of it, I think, is, is not just that, but to show that we all have these different sides um, that we can call upon. And you're right, I do call upon different sides. I mean, I had an experience the other day recently with getting stopped um, for speeding, <laughs> actually. And um, and so I kind of laugh, I guess it's not a bad thing to say. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of, I acted, I, I wasn't dressed feminine enough, you know, to play that card. And I've really never been good at like flirting on command or, you know, that, mm -hmm. but, but I did just fall more into my feminine energy in terms of being honest about what was going on and, you know, kind of asking him to please have mercy which <laughs> 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 he did basically. Oh. And, um, and so, you know, I think that we all, can, we all have different ways we can interact in the world, you know, and I yeah. think that's the lesson we all, and there are different ways that are more beneficial at different times. I think that feminine energy in general, um, tends to be more healing, um, more interactive, more communicative. And that's part of why I have been mainly presenting more female um, these days is just because despite the fact that men's voices are more privileged in general, there's also things that men are not encouraged to express that I can express, you know, if I'm being perceived more as a feminine person um, and expressing myself that way. Um, and so I, I think that that's something that men can can and should really draw upon themselves, you know, and I think that women should realize that it's a strength yeah. to to speak, you know, about your vulnerability or to, to be honest, like it, it can be a strength. It's been misportrayed as a weakness, but in actual one on one interactions, especially it's a strength. And then on the flip side, I also, you know, I have a lot of friends with daughters and I've been fortunate enough to spend a lot of time with them and I've taught them how to be assertive mm -hmm. because that kind of masculine energy is, is really important in many situations as you know, we all know, right? Like yeah. you're going to get passed over if you don't just ask for what you want 
or, you know, put it out there. And this happens to women all the time. And so that was part of the gift for me in actually living as a man for those years. I really got to practice that, you know, not, not, not sitting around like waiting for someone to come over and ask me if I needed something, but just saying, Hey, can this happen? You know, and just really <laughs> yeah. putting it out there and, and assertively asking for what I need. And that's a skill that far too many women don't have really and aren't taught to have. So I do hope that this book can inspire lots of women and men to just draw upon those different sides to themselves. Speaking of the gender fluidity and also I have to ask you about girl boners because I remember when I first met you at World Sexual Health Day, I think the first thing you said to me was, we have to talk about girl boners because you actually have a clitoris that becomes more erect than, you know, a clitoris more frequently would. And uh, so you've been able to to penetrate people. And I remember this part of the book where you're talking about how good that can feel. Like you, you got why that was a, a pleasurable thing for people with, with penises. And, and then also that the clitoris is so pleasure centric. I mean, it's made for pleasure. It's so sensitive. So it's, do you, do you think sometimes, wow, I have the best of both worlds in a way, like I get to, from a genital pleasure standpoint, experience two you know, very different things that not everybody gets to. I really do. And I think that um, one regret is that our society is so sex phobic in certain ways, right? It's not Mm -hmm. when it comes to like parading bodies around, you know, and (laughs) magazines and stuff. That's okay. But to really talk about sex and pleasure and orgasms and all of that isn't something that we do. So, so thank you for bringing it up because it's, it's an important topic and I have not been able to really talk about it enough and share how I think that honestly, my intersex body is a blessing. Mm-hmm. It's and, and people in my life, like my close friends are yeah. constantly saying the same thing, you know, and I have women joking, you know, like, God, I wish mine was as big as yours, <laughs> and, you know, yeah. quite frequently because it is, it's a positive thing. And, and yet it's it's so ironic that it's treated so negatively that they're often literally cut off. I mean, that's the crazy irony, although it, it's not, I don't think it's ironic if you really get very deep and philosophical about it. I mean, on the one hand, you could say, okay, parents are just afraid of their girls being different. But on the other hand, there are these gatekeepers, right? The, the professionals who kind of, decided in the beginning and then keep um keep deciding in the in the current period that this isn't a good thing you know and it's one thing in the 50s when women weren't supposed to enjoy sex and you know very little was known about female sexuality and and people didn't want to know about it frankly and it was suppressed it was one thing back then for people to have this attitude of of you know cutting a clitoris off But now that we have presumably evolved, right, and female sexuality is presumably important, it's crazy to me that people are still arguing for these surgeries when common sense and, you know, as well as firsthand accounts like mine have shared that it's actually a a positive thing. And I think that part of it is, frankly, that there still is 
sexism against, Mm -hmm. you know, women having sexual pleasure and being sexually empowered. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. It's there. Right. And so, while women, all the women who have had it done to them are, you know, complaining and deeply upset about it, the doc, male doctors hearing this and even female doctors um, are not getting behind them and are not getting behind the need to have sexually empowered women who are equally, you know, who, who are treated as equals to men who are supposed to just have access to sexuality, right? It's, it's their birthright, you know, for men, it's like, oh, that's, that's what you have to do. And that's what you look forward to. But for women, we see this, this birthright being taken away. And, and the experts and professionals are still condoning it. And so I think that there has to be a remnant of of sexism, you know, and internalized sexism for the women doctors where part of them just doesn't want women to feel that good. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. That's really uh, profound. And I think resonates with a lot of, of what's going on in our culture right now. And this just brings up those important conversations that I think you're helping to inspire. And chapter five is so powerful and heartbreaking. It's called gender side. And you talk about what you call non-consensual genital surgeries. I know many people call the surgeries intersex genital mutilation. Would you share why it's important to you to to avoid the mutilation word? Well, I do use that word sometimes as well, um, but it kind of depends on the context. You know, sometimes I don't want to trigger people who have unfortunately been subjected to these, you know, it might trigger them to hear it called that just another reminder of of the pain that they suffered. So that's one reason. Um, And then I also, um, currently I'm saying sex reassignment surgeries because really, you know, what's happening here, we've called them all different things over the years. And some adults, as we know from the trans community, voluntarily want to, you know, have surgery on their genitals, right? Yeah. Um, to, to confirm their gender identity. So, so not all surgeries are mutilation, obviously. And that's another reason. Um, but what it, what those surgeries are voluntary. And the huge difference that people don't realize is that ours are not. And I mean, even if they realize that, I think, it's, it's really bizarre. Um, I've had colleagues, fellow activists point out how, um, even some human rights bodies recently have made the mistake of calling our surgeries, the ones performed on babies who obviously didn't ask for them, um, sex confirming sex, sex alignment surgeries. Mm. And I'm like, Oh my God, they are not that's not what's happening. Like no. that what's happening is that these babies are giving, are being given sex changes that they never asked for sex reassignments basically. And, and if you look at it like that, I think it's helpful because you think, wow, who would give a baby a sex reassignment surgery? Yeah. It's insane. It totally I mean, is. a lot of people I, don't even like it when adults do it. And, and you know, and obviously that's transphobic, but my point is that like, how could you have strong feelings about this and yet think it's fine to do it to a baby? Right. Yeah. And that's really what's happening. And the problem is that 
being intersex has been portrayed as a defect, right? And just such an innate defect that of course you would have to change it. So of course it would be corrective, right? And, and, and that's simply wrong. We are a natural variation. Um, in the vast majority, we have no health issues, just like male or female babies. In some cases we do just like male or female babies, but what we are is a variation of sex. We are naturally occurring different sex. And people just haven't really wanted to admit that because they haven't been ready to expand their notion of sex, right? We have hundreds of years of like men and women, man and wife, and all of these patriarchal ideas of, of what it is, yeah. um, you know, and what the sexes are and what their roles are and how opposite they are. So to admit that there's actually three sexes, And a whole spectrum of sex, because even the third sex, you know, has a whole huge spectrum within it from intersex people who look very male to intersex people who look very female to everyone in between. That's that kind of throws the whole sexist patriarchal paradigm on its head. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it, it changes that ability to be like, well, Men, of course, will have this role, and women, of course, will have this role. And it makes you begin to think, oh, well, maybe people are just suited to whatever they're suited for individually along the spectrum of who they are individually, right? And and I think our society, sadly, for so many years hasn't been ready for that, but I think that we are getting there. I do, too. That's really nice to hear from you. And I do think that the that even the existence of intersex people is a powerful, you know, acknowledging intersex people and and the third sex and the spectrum is such a huge way of making that progress. It's just it's amazing. And I remember when you were talking about I believe it was the Tyra Banks show. I know you've appeared on many different talk shows and in big publications uh, telling your story and speaking about these issues. And right after that show, you did some research to find out if it was as common as having red hair. And it, it seemed that the, the data su- suggested, yeah, it's that common. Do you feel because there are many people who have probably not come out yet or, or maybe don't know much about intersex or that they are intersex, do you think it's more common than anyone realizes? Yes. Yeah. The stats that we have, if anything, are low because of that. I mean, you're exactly right. I mean, we have very few people that have been coming out still relative to the amount. And one really easy way to to see that is that we know that there's more intersex people than trans people statistically. And yet you would never know that based on the amount of social um, recognition, right? And understanding that's out there. I've had a lot of people approach me who think the opposite. And so, you know, basically the fact is that most of us, have still been too shy. And I think it's because there's not enough information out there yet to come out, Mm. you know, haven't wanted to deal with educating everyone if they come out with feeling, you know, alone because there's not, you know, a lot of out intersex celebrities, politicians, et cetera. Um, And so, yeah, there's probably even more of us. And also, 
you know, there's people that contact me all the time who are like, I'm not sure if I'm intersex. And then they tell me the details of their body or their medical records. And they are completely intersex. I mean, my favorite is a woman who contacted me who's married and said she, you know, had three children with her husband and they were, she was expecting the fourth. And she told me that her clitoris was four inches long, which is quite a bit larger than mine. And really one of the largest that I've heard of, you know, for a woman that, that identifies and lives as woman is happily married and mind you can obviously get pregnant. Right. And yet she has this very big variation in her genitals and she didn't even know if she could use that word. And so, because nobody's talking about it, right. And nobody's telling you. And so I think that there's just a ton of people out there like this. Um, yeah. And I think that what's going to happen that started happening is, we're going to reach that tipping point, you know, where enough people start talking about it, that suddenly more people start coming out. And at one point, just tons of people come out and and we, and the world is suddenly different in a really positive way. And I don't know if you've seen the news, but Oregon just became the first state to allow non-binary driver's licenses. And, and what I mean by that is that anyone can go and apply for a driver's license and without a doctor's letter of confirmation, which, um, you know, has long been necessary for these kinds of things, they can ask for their sex to be listed as X for not specified. Mm. So, yeah. And so the person who first initiated that in Oregon is a trans person named Jamie Shoup, who's a trans and non-binary person. And, um, you know, but not intersex, right? So you don't have to be intersex. And I think that's great because just like you don't have to have been born with male genitals to be a man, right? And to identify as male, I think that you don't have to be intersex to identify as non-binary. And in case um, some of your listeners are unfamiliar with that term, non-binary is basically the term that's become most popular for people who do not feel themselves to be a man or a woman. Yes. Right. And yes. it's apparently becoming very um, common in a lot of youth. Um, the, the older friends of uh, my children's who are like starting to enter high school tell me that, you know, there's a significant number of students who are non-binary and we have one friend, you know, my partner and I, whose child is non-binary and it, I think that what it is is that people are just becoming tired of the old roles Hmm. and they're kind of opting out, you know, that that's what I've heard from folks um, that they just don't feel that like this stereotypical identity of woman feels right, but then neither does the one of a man, you know, they all have these, these kinds of um, ideas placed upon them. Right. And, and they're kind of like, you know what? I'm, I'm neither. Yes. I'm just me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is so interesting because as I was reading your book, I was thinking about the existence of pronouns. Cause I know, um, we can talk about the pronouns that, that you prefer. I know it's different for everyone. Um, but because we have historically had he and she, I've wondered what they even are for, because 
I know that historically, like there used to be the his section and her section of the help wanted ads. And it used to be presumed that he meant you have a penis and she meant you had a vulva. So do you feel like in the very, very distant future, probably, but down the road that it, it does it matter that we have these pronouns and, or is that an important piece of our identity too, you know, just to, to say, I really, this one really connects with me. Well, you know, I, I feel the first way. Um, and I was just talking about this over the weekend that ideal in my ideal world, we wouldn't have gendered pronouns. We would have just one pronoun, you know, when we needed to not refer to a person by name that was gender neutral for all, everyone, all humans. Because frankly, you know, if you think about it, as you pointed out, right, we've divided things for so long into male or female in ways that don't benefit women. You know, um, I mean, there there are a few areas, and I won't get into it right now, but um, mainly the divisions are made to keep women down. Mm. And we've seen so many stories of women applying for jobs and not stating their gender and then realizing they get, you know, offered higher pay mm-hmm. when people think they're male and things like that. Authors writing under a pseudonym because they knew they wouldn't get published as women you know, in, in older times, um, all sorts of instances where we see that, like, really, all it does when you, you put that she on there is you give these ideas. And, I mean, my quick explanation is that if you see she, suddenly everyone's thinking, oh, could be a mom, could be pretty, could be, you know, there, there's these kind of gendered stereotypes that get attached. Mm-hmm. And then when there's he, there's not as many stereotypes. Um, and what I mean by that is like he, men are kind of put in the centralized position of power, right? And it used to be like, this has changed, but all humans get called men, right? Like in the constitution, all men are created equal and actually only applied to men. So that was accurate. But, (laughs) you know, people have been arguing against how, you know, why is everyone a man? Like that's sort of the baseline. And if you're something else, then you're a little inferior, you know, or a little sexualized. Um, Equal only if you have, you know, superior beauty that is like very attractive to the baseline male. So, you know, I think that if we made everyone the baseline by just removing that, we would have a more equal society. Mm-hmm. That's my opinion, you know, and, yeah. and obviously, you know, if people met someone who's female and identifies as a woman and lives happily as a woman, which, um, you know, I did for many years, then you know, you, you know that there's no reason to really have it be on a legal document and have it be the first thing you see about a person, even, you know, sometimes, right. Like you don't really need to know. Yeah. It's like, what is it even for? And I, I've experienced a little bit of the, um, because August is traditionally a, a male name. And so as a writer, I have had numerous experiences where people have been more complimentary or, I was getting lots of responses to like query letters when I was sending it out because my the first book I wrote was a thriller and they 
so many people assumed I was a man. And, uh, and, and I, it did occur to me, I thought, and we, we already use they, if we don't know, if we don't know a person's gender, um, if we're talking about, you know, some random person and, and, and yet people seem to struggle a lot with using other kinds of pronouns. What pronouns do you prefer? And, and do you think there is sort of a universal ideal? Yeah. And, and so, yeah, it's interesting to hear that, right. That you experienced that with your name. Um, I, so uh, pronouns have been tricky for me, honestly, and they still are a bit. I, I, I kind of see it as a work in progress or kind of like TBA to be announced. Around my pronouns. <laughs> right now I'm using um, she, he, it's written she, he. So I, I have a very kind of complex pronoun uh, choice right now, which is fine. But, you know, it's I'm not sure if it'll be the permanent one. It's pronounced she and her, but I spell it S slash H E for she, which, you know, you could say she, he, and then H E slash R for the her. So when you're writing about me, it's obvious that I'm a non-binary person, you know, or intersex person, someone, you know, with dual gender, um, issues happening. But I'm let I'm I'm going with the female pronunciation because frankly I'm I'm into being a woman in many ways. Um, you know, I was raised as a woman and I have a firsthand, very deep insight into sexism and all the sexism that women uh, experience. And so there's a part of me that doesn't really want to give that up. You yeah. know, I think the feminist part of me doesn't want to give it up. Yeah. And and just feels like, but here's the catch, people and people still. And it kind of surprises me because I don't think I I present that male anymore. But people still call me he quite a bit or sir, but I never correct them because I'm not attached. So that's how it's complicated. Like I'm really not attached to pronouns. I'm not offended by any pronoun people would use for me to me it's kind of like pronouns are just sort of a, a wrapping you know on the package that that you give to packages that you know it, it are based purely on a visual perception so if someone looks a certain way we use she if they look another way we use he mm -hmm. and at this point I, occasionally people do call me they and I like that they're trying to respect the fact that they can tell I'm gender non-conforming you know um and they is out there but basically it, it it's something external you know I think pronouns are something that are external and are externally impo imposed on us and so since I'm about knowing who I am regardless of what the world you know, thinks of me or sees me to be, I don't really care, you know? And so, and then that loops around to, because I don't care, having people use she is just easier if that's what most people are used to calling me and kind of perceive me as. So that's sort of my long, and it's interesting because it's a very different attitude, I realized, than a lot of trans people who really, um, you know, for them, for a lot of trans people I know, it's very important to have the, the pronoun that matches their gender identity used. 
but, um, and I respect that. And I, you know, use whatever pronouns people, you know, want me to use for them. But personally, I kind of think that they're a little superficial. And so I don't give them much weight. Yeah, that's yeah. my long and convoluted answer. No, it's really helpful, and it's yeah. it's really fascinating. I think it's something that you know comes up more not, more often. And I feel like I just try not to assume anything. And then if somebody tells me, I feel like people who have a lot of attachment or really want to have you know be called a certain pronoun, th- they often will tell you, you know, or I don't yeah. know. I just try to not assume. Yeah, I think that's good. I'll ask too, like if I'm unsure, you know, if the person um, doesn't seem clearly one or the other based on that really superficial package um, assessment that I (laughs) just talked about, um, I'll ask, right? But I do think that, um, yeah, I think it's just important to be respectful and it's not as hard as everyone paints it out to be. I'm I'm getting kind of frustrated at all these things that I, I hear from kind of Republican or right wing people lately about, oh, it's becoming a world where it's so difficult to say anything without offending someone and then you get silenced. And I just think that's a load of crap personally. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, the people that are in power frequently do not get silenced. <laughs> yep. And that a few times, right? <laughs> Meaning, you know, AKA straight white men typically do not get silenced for so many hurtful things that are said. And then I think that, you know, the times that people have been silenced, um, you know, simply because of a strong reaction, I think it's because they've said things that are really hurtful to large numbers of people. And so, I feel like the focus around that is misguided. Like people are kind of taking this first amendment kind of approach to what really amounts to just, do you care about hurting your fellow human beings or not? Yes, absolutely. I, I feel like a lot of the, the criticism of PC lingo, it's like, well, if you've, if you've never been the hurt one, you know, it's not up to the white male to decide how, uh, somebody who identifies as female, you know, is talked about. Like we should always ask right. the person who's being talked about. It just seems so obvious. But then, like you said, it's it's about control. And even if it's subconscious, I think we have internalized a lot of that. Yeah, I saw this great um, meme or something like um, being considerate hurt, you know, is painful when you're used to just acting from a place of privilege. You know, and so and then that's <laughs> yeah. basically speaks to that, right? It's yeah. sort of like if you've always just, you know, gotten away with saying whatever you want and trashing however many minorities you want, then suddenly, yeah, it's gonna feel a little painful to have to change your language and cut all those hurtful words out of your speech. Yeah. But you know what? It's it's the ethical and it's just what's the the right thing to do. I actually I'm old enough to remember that I was in college when the term PC emerged and it didn't emerge from lefty folks. It emerged from the right wing and it was created basically to try to stop people from using considerate language. So in other words, you know, it, it was the mid eighties and People were becoming more, you know, aware of sexism and racism. I mean, we have been all along becoming more aware, but whatever. For, for at that time period, 
I guess there was a a surge of, um, you know, there were the anti-apartheid protests. I took part of those. There was a surge of, of um, you know, concern about racism and, and racist language and other hurtful language. And then suddenly the term PC popped up and it was invented by the right wing to try to put down people who were, you know, speaking out against insulting racial epithets, right? So it was kind of like, don't get behind that. That's not cool. Oh, that's so PC. It was basically invented to try to make it seem appear uncool to cut hurtful words out of your vocabulary. Wow. You know, and, and it's still used that way. And it's it's frankly, I feel like the whole term shouldn't even exist. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. It's about consideration and and absolutely I agree completely. It it makes a lot of sense. And I do hope that's the direction we're going. And I know a lot of improvements have happened in your lifetime a lot that you have fueled yourself and that you still see some discrimination are first of all are the surgeries still kind of commonplace like are doctors instructed to to recommend surgery now if a child is born intersex that's a question that we don't really have the answer to um and it's a really great question thank you for answering it what I do know um, is that doctors are still fighting against a ban on these surgeries. So doctors are still invested. Um, there is a bill, for example, that got introduced in Nevada about a month ago to ban these surgeries in the state of Nevada. Jeez. And there was one doctor, um, female, unfortunately, but very conservative seeming, um, wealthy seeming, blonde, straight female doctor, Dr. Close, um, arguing against it. And her rationale was, we don't even know which bathroom to let transgender people use. Society, I don't believe society is ready for a third sex. Oh my gosh. What does that have yeah. to do with that person's, I mean... <laughs> That's I know, insane. I know. And so I'm like, you really felt the need to get on the news to, you know, and this was on a news broadcast, so you, ah. you can hear her say it. And and so, and, you know, and other doctors are privately fighting it. And so we see that there is resistance. I mean, at any moment, the American Medical Association and the American Pediatrics Association and the Endocrinologist Association, all the ones that, uh, you know, are heavy um, stakeholders in this, they could come out with the statement at any time saying that we realize that these surgeries should not be performed. They should be the child's decision at an age when they are able to, you know, to ask for any changes they want. Um, or don't want, you know, um, and and that would be very easy to do, but they're not doing it. So I think that that's basically the answer to your question is that, you know, while I don't know for sure that like in medical school, endocrinologists are getting taught to recommend this, you know, if they see an intersex baby or pediatricians, um, I do know that it's still taught. You know, it's wow. still taught as a recommended practice and it's still often recommended. Uh, we've had, you know, a few stories in the news with parents talking about how it was recommended just recently, you know. And they so have no proof of yeah. a benefit, right? Like there's, I know that there can be 
you talk about there's some, you know, if there's obviously if there is a medical issue that needs some assistance, then that's that's different from trying to, you know, determine what their genitalia should look like. Um, is there any any case where it's like, oh, this person had that surgery to take off most of the clitoris and they're happier? Like, is there anything? I have never seen one, no. And and what doctors will frequently argue, the ones that, you know, advocate for the surgeries, are that we don't see those situations because those are all just the silent, happy majority, oh right? And And because they're happy with their surgeries and they're happy to now be normal men or normal women and normals in quotes, um, they're not going to talk about it publicly, of course, right? So in other words, they don't want to publicly admit that they're intersex and this ever happened, but they're happy with their results. And I think that's, again, a load of crap because, you know, we all know the way social media works and the way that people are very vocal. It's a very easy medium to be vocal. You can be anonymous. You can say things, you know, very strong things anonymously. And so there is this gigantic intersex movement now getting more and more attention. And it's been going on for 20 years. And at this point, with social media having the strength it does, it would be so easy for even one of these happy, you know, former patients to come out and say, you know what, activists, please stop because this is actually very beneficial. And you're going to hurt someone. I mean, they would have impetus to do it, you know, because they might want to, you know, stop, stop something that's harmful and share about what was beneficial and that they could do so even anonymously. And yet no one has. So that's what really makes me, you know, know beyond that the obvious kind of intuitive common sense approach and everything I've seen as well, that. Yeah, they're harmful. I mean, it's it's sensitive tissue. Everyone knows that. Every parent who has shared, you know, that they consented to the surgeries but then later regretted it has said that their gut was telling them not to do it, you know? Yeah. And I right, and I think, you know, every parent wants their baby to be able to come home and not have to go into an operating room. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's what you want. Who wants to send a tiny little fragile baby, you know, under the knife in mm-hmm. an operating room? Like no one wants to do that. And so I think that, you know, parents gut instinct is typically not to do it. And yet they just get told, oh, well, you know, there could be difficulties and depression. I mean, I've heard the most outrageous lies that my favorite in terms of being an outrageous lie being that, oh, it'll be painful when they have sex. That has been said to numerous parents, just the ones that I've heard from personally, as a reason for for doing this surgery. And that's when I get really angry. I mean, in general, I'm not too angry at doctors because I think they're just doing what they're trained to do. And they're not psychologists, they're not sociologists, they're not trained in gender and sexuality, you know, they're not experts in those fields at all, necessarily. So they're just kind of doing what they're trained to do and what seems obvious to them, you know, like, oh, well, this is different, but we can fix it and make them normal, right? That's kind of a, you know, I I can understand why someone might think that, but when they go so far as to start lying about things, that's when I, I get really angry. And I think like, what, you know, why, 
And that's when you really see there's so much prejudice behind it. Yeah. There's a really deep underlying prejudice against intersex bodies and people and a desire to not have us be around. Um, and so I think that that's, you know, that's just the reality. But I think that fortunately, society is changing as much as we, you know, are all like horrified by what's happening politically. I think that the citizenry and, and the vast majority of the human species is actually evolving more than ever before. Mm. I hope what happens with intersex people and intersex babies is the same thing that's been happening with circumcision, which is that without a ban, right, without any kind of law telling parents that they can't perform this surgery on their sons, the rates of circumcision in the U.S. have dropped dramatically since the movement began, wow. um, which was originally the anti-circumcision movement, and now they call themselves the intactivism movement, right, mm -hmm. to, like, stress intact, healthy bodies. So, you know, they did try. There was a, a bill in San Francisco against circumcision, um, I want to say about five years ago, but it was uh, – they had to strike it down because of um, – some Jewish lobbying groups were, you know, were, were threatening to sue and freedom of religion and all that. So it got too complicated and they had to stop it. But nevertheless, even without a legal ban, the rates have dropped. And I think that's just because parents and especially mothers have decided based on what they've seen, you know, the information that was put out there by a lot of nurses. Um, my friend Marilyn Milos is one of the founders, many others. Um, who got the information out there that these surgeries, circumcision, can be extremely harmful. And and so without even like the degree of harm that we see with intersex surgeries, right? Mothers just decided, you know what? If there's any chance this is going to harm my son, I'm not doing it. Mm. And it's happening silently and, you know, the rates have dropped dramatically. It's around 50% now as an overall average and, and lower in many cities. And it used to be, you know, almost 100. So so I think that that, I'm hoping that that's what's going to happen with intersex babies. You know, my dream is to create a world where we don't have to have a ban on these surgeries. But parents just instinctively love their children so much that they don't want to perform them. Mm. That is right? so beautiful. Yeah, yeah. I could see that. For yeah, sure. like it can happen, yeah. you know. I, I think that what happens too is although, you know, a ban would be great in certain ways, I think that a lot of parents might feel um I don't know, upset or angered by not by being told what to do. Yeah. You know what I mean? And and I just think that, and obviously uh, I can hear a lot of intersex people I know being like, how can you say that? And we just need to stop it. And I get that. I get that it needs to stop. But I also get being a parent and just wanting to feel like you have the right to, to do certain things, right, around yeah. your child. I mean, and I'm also, you know, pro-reproductive rights. So, and, and that says that you have the right to even not have your child, right? If, if you're not ready, if yeah. you can't do it. So I'm not so into 
um, telling parents what they have to do. I just think that, you know, we need to make it obvious. And I think it's been happening that this is really harmful to the point where no parent would ever want to. And frankly, doctors wouldn't want to recommend it either. And that I know is happening. There have been more doctors stepping up to speak about the fact that they don't recommend it and they don't think it's positive. And so I think that that's a huge turning point. And, and that's going to really help too. Yeah, absolutely. I know that you credit largely your own father who was a doctor and his training didn't include anything about these, quote, corrective surgeries. And so you felt that, you know, perhaps he didn't, he knew as a doctor that it wasn't necessary. I wondered if you ever talked to him about that. You know... I haven't. And that's a really, a long story and you've read a lot of it, (laughs) but you know, my dad was, even though he made this wonderful decision, which I'll always be grateful for, um, he was a really troubled man and he was very abusive in a lot of, um, ways. And, and, you know, but my, I'm not the only one, my siblings, you know, agree and, and we all agree. Um, and so we all experienced this. And one of the things that he really disliked was any kind of alternative sexuality or talk about sexuality or anything to do with genitals. You know, he was old school kind of Latino Catholic person, man, which, you know, you don't talk about those things. And so... I frankly, given that I was disowned for being a lesbian and and already, you know, kind of treated really poorly in a lot of different ways around sexual issues, I haven't wanted to initiate the discussion. Um, And I guess I'll share here, it's kind of a good part too, like I want to give a shout out to any youth who are feeling really unloved by their parents. Because I think that, you know, we live in a society where people assume that all parents love their children. And I've been to all sorts of um, places and even like spiritual minded, like, you know, self-help, personal growth spaces where I hear the presenter say something like, if you can't, you know, forgive your parents or love your parents, the people who care about you the most on this earth, then, you know, you really have to work on it. And there's something wrong with you. I've heard things like that. And I've Mm. always felt so, um, you know, angry for the, the people out there that don't have loving parents. I really want to give a shout out to all those youth out there. I know there's a ton and I know that it's one of the most painful things that I think you can experience to really feel like your own parent doesn't think you're good enough because you're not doing this or this or this. You're not straight enough or smart enough or, you know, whatever it may be. And, and I want to say that you are loved regardless of who loves you and you can and will find the strength to, to love yourself in the way that your parents never did because that's what I basically had to do. And, you know, I'm not, you know, any better than anyone else. So if I did it, everyone can do it. 
And um, yeah, that's that's my little my little um, spiritual message of the day. Um, but yeah, I I was thinking about maybe trying to reach out to him again. My dad, you know, just he's getting a lot older, and I'm not sure how long he'll be around. But everything, you know, that last conversation where he said that wasn't that long ago. And I just, mm. I've never seen an indication that he can change yeah. or has a desire to change. And so I don't know if it's worth it for me. I think that, you know, one of the things that has made, enabled me to thrive is knowing when to step away from abusive situations. Mm. Yeah, you know, those boundaries are so important. Yeah. I mean, it's like, yeah, it would be great to say, oh, I worked it all out and we're all, you know, oh, we made it through all of this. But if I can't, because it's going to be too difficult for me, because, you know, he's going to be too mean and abusive, et cetera, then, then I need to love myself enough to let go. So. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder too, as you were sharing that, I thought of the part in your book where you're talking about, you were talking with your mother, you had some quality time with her, um, not too long before she sadly passed away and she told you she was proud of you and, but she had also been sharing about her relationship with, with your father and, and you were asking, you know, she, she stayed and, and felt she had to stay. Do you feel that you're a bit more, did did wanting to, you know, kind of that, what you learned from your, your parent situation and caring so much about your mother, I know that you also thought about her own pain. Do you feel an extra sense of wanting to set those boundaries and, and recommend that people set them because of her own pain in, in not doing so? Yeah, I'm sure that's informed me. I mean, Now it feels kind of a bit in the past, but I definitely like throughout my 20s would see uh, female friends of mine occasionally getting into destructive or abusive relationships with men. And it was very difficult, you know, to watch. And, And I was always the one that was really like kind of pushing for them to make the break or trying to assist them, you know, to make the break. And, um, yeah, it was, it was heartbreaking to see how much she suffered in that marriage. And yet, you know, as you see in the book, it's really bittersweet because if she hadn't, I wouldn't be here, but yeah, I think that seeing my mom go through that, just, it it was heart wrenching. And I hope that no one has to go through it. I know that sadly many women do, but I think that's also why I'm so, you know, if I ever have a chance to speak with young women and and I see that they're in that situation, I'm really, you know, really strong with like, get out before you're stuck. Yeah. You're such, I love it. You're an activist in like every facet of your life. It's great. Um, (laughs) I know. Well, you know, I think that's because of the intersectionalities, right? And, and, I'm so happy that that's a big focus right now in social justice and at that word, you know, because it used to be like you had to kind of separate yourself. And I did this. I had to separate the part of me that was into like gay rights from the part of me that was Latina at that time. Now I identify as Latinx because I used the gender neutral word, but, um, 
you know, and then, and also the part of me that was in white environments from the part of me that identified as a person of color, because there just wasn't room for both issues, right? There wasn't room for more than one single issue in each of these movements. And I'm really happy to see that that's changing. Mm. Um, I know that there's still a long way to go. And I know this from just you know, conference I was at recently, um, where you can see all the divisions and how they play out, but it's at least being addressed and spoken about, right? So that, you know, you have people realizing that if you're going to speak out against sexism, you have to speak out against all sexism, not just the type that, you know, white privileged women experience, but also the type that lesbians experience, women of color experience and queer, you know, all, all trans and gender nonconforming women experience, like all of the different types of oppression, uh, sexism should be addressed or else we're not really interested in equality. That's so inspiring. I, I think so too. I do. I, and it's affirming to me to hear it from you. I'd love to read what is probably my favorite paragraph if I had to choose one from your book because it's not only very lyrical and poignant but it says so much about your message I think it's on page 323 it says being intersex hasn't always been easy but it's my greatest teacher and the lessons have been worth every tortured moment now for me being intersex is the fusion the effortless union of yin and yang it is a space all in its own where something revolutionarily loving, balanced, and harmonious is created. It actually exists, and it's where I live. You talk about the lessons that this journey has given you, and I wonder, what is kind of the biggest takeaway you hope readers take from your book? Well, I think, thank you for reading that, first of all. Um, and I think the biggest takeaway, well, okay, I'm going to do two. <laughs> I'm sorry, because I'm just like that. I have to. Um, bored both, you know. Um, <laughs> my, my biggest takeaway in a universal way um, is that readers take away that no matter how differently you see yourself, from the norm and no matter how difficult it seems, you know, to embrace certain parts of yourself because they're not supposed to be, you know, you, you're not supposed to be that way according to society's values. Like all parts of us are beautiful and we are beautiful regardless of, of being different. I mean, and in fact, I often think because of being different, so I think that's the biggest takeaway because I think if everybody really felt comfortable with, with, you know, all their differences, and this could be someone that appeared typically straight white male, you know, but has some private difference that they keep to themselves. Anyone, you know, if usually it's, it's out of being ashamed or embarrassed or feeling badly about those things that people act out and lash out and there's just all sorts of pain and suffering. So that's the biggest lesson I hope people take away. Um, and then, um, well, tied, that's one of the biggest, is I hope everyone realizes, and I think this is a, a given, but it's it's the main reason I wrote this memoir. I hope everyone realizes that being intersex is just as beautiful as being male or female, and that intersex people are fantastic, and we are, you know, just as fantastic as everyone else, that we are just another beautiful variation. 
And, you know, frankly, most of the people in my life have thought that all along. And so I really do think that it's, it's very possible. And I hope that this book helps with that mission. Beautiful. I have no doubt it will. I, I think it's incredibly apparent throughout your entire story and in your person and the work that you do. I know that you do a lot of activism. Tell people where they can find you and stay in touch. Great. Um, yes. Uh, my uh, nonprofit is called Intersex Campaign for Equality, or OIIUSA, and you can find us at www.oii-usa.org. And we have a whole list of resources of many other intersex organizations as well, and resources and free resources and up-to-date news and ways to get peer support. And so, yeah, please check it out, oii-usa.org. And then if you want to keep it um, updated on my own personal work and writing, please visit and follow heatofaloria.com or at heatofaloria on Facebook or Twitter and Instagram. Thanks so much again, Hita. You are amazing. Today's Ask Dr. Megan question comes from Carrie, who wrote this. My marriage has been sexless for most of our seven years together, and we're pretty sure it's because of my hubby's ADHD. We tried polyamory because I couldn't live without sex anymore and didn't want my marriage to break up. But something about new partners turned my husband's drive into hyperdrive, which is why we think it's the ADHD. He went from not wanting sex ever to wanting it multiple times per day. But that experience hurt me because he made mistakes I felt I had to pay the price for. So we're back to sexlessness, and I've stopped initiating because the rejection has been so painful. He's even gone so far as to stop showing all physical affection unless I ask. I tried to meet him in the middle, saying, okay, I can deal with no sex until you figure this out, but I need physical affection, cuddling, kissing, hugs, but even that is non-existent unless I ask for it. When we talked about it, he suggests Polly again because it's the only way he knows to improve his libido. I would be okay with open marriage, but not Polly. More importantly, I want to make sure we're addressing underlying issues and not using other relationship styles as a band-aid. Hubby is open to counseling, but skeptical because the last therapist seemed horrified about his sex drive issues. Any suggestions? Such an important question. Thank you, Carrie. Here is what Dr. Megan Fleming had to say. Carrie, I completely appreciate your question. I guess first and foremost, I want to say that, listen, this isn't really about how we define it. You know, whether or not we're talking about um, making sense of and, you know, is this ADHD? Are we going to define it as open or polyamorous? But more, most importantly, your needs are not getting met in your relationship, in your marriage. And I think that really takes front and center. And listen, this isn't specific to you. This um, challenge is, you know, existed since the beginning of time in so many ways. Um, but I think that it seems like from your response, you guys have really tried to open things up and see whether or not that would make an improvement. And in doing so, it seems like the cost, you know, sort of exceeded, you know, the benefits in a sense. It, it, in, in your own words, you said that, um, quote unquote, even trying to be open or polyamorous, um, he made mistakes that you felt you had to pay the price for. And I think that that, that language and that awareness is like really an opportunity for you to take a big breath and step back and think about whether or not ultimately this marriage is meeting your needs. And and by that, I mean, listen, it's certainly true that um, we all are 
um, you know, have challenges necessarily, potentially, potentially actually in a monogamous relationship, but that in this existence and circumstance, you open things up and a way that really didn't work for you. And is that honestly the only way that your husband knows his sexuality or his sexual attraction? It seems to me that, you know, there's a big perhaps a split or discrepancy between the role of intimacy connection and potentially eroticism. And for that, um, the great book I would recommend is by my colleague and friend, Esther Perel, Meeting in Captivity. But I don't think this is, it might or may not be necessarily an erotic split. Um, you know, that idea being, how do you eroticize the familiar? Um, it just feels to me that it's simplistic to think that it's ADHD in that what other symptoms are present? What are, what are other ways of understanding how and why he might have a challenge, right? To want to be intimate and sexual with you. Um, and that in the context, you know, I think we can call it open marriage, we call it polyamorous. And I think for those that are listening, the biggest difference there is that, you know, in an open relationship, the, you know, the couple's committed, but not exclusive in terms of sex. And that in a polyamorous, um, there's a commitment, but not exclusive in terms of love and or sex. Meaning that, you know, in an open marriage, the idea is, you have sex with others, but you're committed to one and polyamorous in a sense, there can be a love of many as well as sexual intimacy. And that, you know, I don't think it sounds like that that's the answer for your marriage because you've tried it on before and it didn't feel like it was a good fit. It seems like it had the potential to, in a sense, turn on his sex drive, but that ultimately by your own words, you know, in terms of, um, the hurt that it caused, you know, the, the cost was more than the benefit of the gain. And so I actually think that it would be helpful for you to seek the advice of a professional, could be um, a licensed marriage and family therapist or a sex therapist or a psychologist, um, but that ultimately it feels more complex as often sexuality is than a diagnosis or um, a label, you know, because I think that there's so much more that goes into understanding one's turn-ons, turn-offs, and how and why when it's not open or polyamorous, you know, your husband basically is showing no interest, as you said, not just for sex, but for touch, for connection. I mean, I think that that's huge and important and you know, it's not something in a marriage that you should feel like in any level that you feel like you have to beg in a sense for or ask for. Um, it's not as if he's not aware of your own needs, wants, and longings. And the fact that he doesn't know how to prioritize that or um, even acknowledge, you know, hey, it's been a stressful day. I'm exhausted, but I so want to connect with you later. He's not even doing that. And I think that that is sort of a hallmark of, recognizing, you know, at, at, at sort of a core level, is your husband open to the kind of marriage and relationship ultimately you want to be in? So listen, I'm really trying to help you recognize that this is complex and I'm sure I don't want to simplify, um, in any way that there's 
probably many, many, many reasons that your marriage and relationship looks this way, but that ultimately, I think it's not so simple as to say, are we open or are we polyamorous? I think it's a much bigger question and that ultimately seeking the help of a professional will help you both figure it out. As always, I'd love to hear how it goes. Thanks so much, Dr. Megan. Everyone, check out her work at greatlifegreatsex.com. Carrie, I hope that was helpful. I'm sure it's difficult to hear things like, you know, to think about, could this be the end of this relationship? And I think what Dr. Megan really pointed out was the levity of the situation and that professional help is really the way to go, that it's a much more complex issue, likely, as she as she said, sexuality tends to be than ADHD or, or one particular thing. And I really think, you know, it's unfortunate that, that you, other people as well, have had unpleasant experiences with therapy and maybe feeling judged. So finding an open-minded therapist, as you mentioned, is a great idea. There are a few ways to do so. One is to go to ASEC.org and to search in their directory for people who specialize in LGBTQ issues or non-traditional relationships. They tend to be, I think, more open-minded and and as well, really seeking a sex therapist, because I think there's a big difference between a therapist who's more general and somebody who really focuses on sex and sexuality like Dr. Megan does. Uh, And she is in New York, um, and you can find her at greatlifegreatsex.com. You may also really dig Dr. Allison Ash, who I interviewed recently about being a feminist in the bedroom. She's super inclusive in her approach, and she also offers counseling not only in person but via Skype. You can find out more about her at augustmclaughlin.com forward slash feminist dash bedroom or her site turnon.love forward slash coaching to learn more. I think it's also really important for all of you listening, you know, that if you are having needs that aren't being met or you're having challenges in the bedroom or sexually or intimately with your partner, that that you stand up for them. And I think it's really hard when, you know, Carrie mentioned that she's really happy with her husband in uh, countless other ways, right? So when we're happy with our partner and we really care about them, it's so hard sometimes to bring up topics and issues that we feel may be hurtful to them, you know? And I think in my experience, I've had to really work on that and to go, you know, somebody who really cares about us, they want to know what our struggles are, even if it's hard to hear, even if it involves specifically them, right? And working through that can bring you closer than you ever imagined. So I hope this is the beginning of a new beautiful journey for you, Carrie, and I wish you all the best. If any of you have a question that you'd like me or Dr. Megan to answer or weigh in on or a topic you're dying to learn more about, I'd love to hear from you. Head over to augustmclaughlin.com and click on the contact tab. All the messages go directly to me. No one else reads them and I'm very happy to protect your privacy. Again, my website, augustmclaughlin.com. Sign up for email updates and subscribe on iTunes if you haven't yet. Thank you so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week.